Hello, Velo News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, and I am coming at you with another Velo News Tech Podcast, and we're going to talk about some complex topics today and distill them down into some terms that we can all understand. Today, we're going to talk about something I think we all kind of take for granted. Uh, we're going to be talking carbon. Uh, now, mostly, uh, just about everybody who, who's, who's riding today is probably riding a carbon bike. Um, and as somebody who just recently got his hands on a titanium frame after a long time off of metal, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about metal, but I ride mostly carbon in day-to-day life. So I got to thinking about some of the early carbon bikes that I used to ride and, and how they've changed so significantly from, from those days till now. And one of the things that's changed is, you know, we talk about bikes today and everything is, is laterally stiff, vertically compliant, and super lightweight. Well, yeah, that, we're, we're a little tired of those terms, but it wasn't always that way with carbon frames. I mean, they used to be heavier, uh, they weren't as durable, and they rode differently. I mean, the, the ride quality was significantly different between a carbon bike now and a carbon bike, you know, 10 years ago. So I wanted to get at the heart of what happened to create such a change. And now, you know, we're still using carbon. It's still the same material, but it's used differently now. And there's different types of carbon and, and the way they're laid up. In, in a mold uh, really affects how your bike rides. So to talk a little bit about the science behind that, I've got on the line uh, Jeff Socek, and he is the Director of Research and Development at Felt Bicycles. Jeff, how are you? Pretty good. How you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, no problem. My pleasure. We're going we're gonna to kind of d- dive right in because I want to talk about uh, not only what felt does to create their frames and, and tailor ride quality, but also how carbon has sort of evolved over the years. And, and you've been in this for a while. Yeah. You've been, you've been working with carbon. How many years do you think you've been working with carbon at this point? Oh, it's been a long time. I mean, I was messing with it back in the days of school and back in project 96 in the Olympics, when I was working for another company, I was exposed to the carbon material back then. So it's been probably 20, 25 years. So okay. lots, lots of change. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and so you were kind of at ground zero. I mean, that carbon has been around a long time, but that was sort of when it was starting to become a real useful uh, material for, for, for bike manufacturing. So you were kind of there at the, at the beginning stages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure, especially when it came to aerodynamics and stuff like that, you know, evolving the shapes for the Olympic projects where kind of you had like, you know, unlimited budget in a way to kind of do what you needed. Mm-hmm. Carbon, of course, was the material of choice. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, a lot has definitely changed in the manufacturing process, the materials, um, everything has changed in the last 25 years. And I think, like you said, that's what's made most of the improvements. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. we can, it'd be great to go through all that. Well, let's, let's start real basic. Uh, first of all, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about a carbon layup? Yeah, no problem. I mean, a carbon layup is something kind of we just refer to as uh, a way an instruction sheet or a recipe, if you will, that let's say the the worker who's building the frame would follow. So it's basically an instruction sheet that goes, you know, step one through step, you know, could be five, six hundred, depending on how many different pieces of carbon are put into the frame. And it shows them exactly step by step. Take this one piece of material that's this size, um, this fiber orientation, this um, weight, and place it in this area on the frame, step two, step three, and so on. So basically what it is, it's it's the manufacturer's recipe of what makes that frame what it is. So it's not really just a so matter that's, of that's getting... That's kind of what a lip is. It's not really a matter of just getting a mold and then slapping carbon in there, closing the mold, heating it up, and, and that's it. There's actually a process to this. 
Yeah, of course. And, and actually, that's one of the things that's changed over the years. I mean, many, many years ago, I think when people first started building carbon bikes, there was a lot of that where they were just putting down fiber and random orientation or even just using fabric for the entire frame, kind of making black metal, if you will, where they really weren't taking advantage of the uh, unidirectional material. But as you know, as times develop, people are understanding how to use the material, how to orient the fibers. And it's not just a matter of slapping you know, material into the mold anymore. There's thousands of pieces and little individual things that could go into a frame to build it nowadays. Mm -hmm. So uh, about a year ago, I was actually at your facility. I was at Felt and uh, you, you gave a very, uh, very in-depth in talk exactly about this topic. And that's kind of what got me started on this topic in general was, was that discussion about how, not only how carbon is laid up and, and oriented and things like that, but the fact that there are so many different types of carbon. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you already mentioned unidirectional carbon. Let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of carbon and how they're used. Sure, sure. And, you know, in the bicycle industry, we kind of just distill it down to kind of say like, you know, 30 ton material, 40 ton, 60 ton material. And that kind of deals with like the tensile modulus of the material. And that's what a lot of consumers want to know, because they're always told, you know, stiffer is better. You know, I want high modulus material because that's going to give me a stiff bike and I need that for power transition and things like that. But again, it's not always the case, you know, um, like I always tell people, it's always about finding the balance of materials. So that's one of the important things that's gone into the technology nowadays is finding how to mix these different types of materials that are available. So how do I use a combination of a standard modulus material? It's going to give me pretty good stiffness, but it's going to give me a lot of strength, kind of like a, a good foundation of a house, if you will. But then you take it to the next level and you can start adding some of the higher modulus materials in parts of the frame that have you know, additional requires um, areas of stiffness. So for example, you can put a higher modulus material around the bottom bracket area. You can put it in different parts of the top tube. You can tune and match different types of fibers depending on their properties needed for strength and stiffness on various parts of the frame. So what you end up doing is you get a frame that's just as strong, if not stronger than the frames that were hundreds of grams heavier, but now you're getting a frame that's a lot lighter because you're putting the strong material where it needs to be strong, you're putting the stiff material where it needs to be stiff, and you're putting the material that gives a bit of comfort, a bit of vibration damping where it belongs. And by using all these different materials in a premium frame, that's how we're tuning them and making them so much better. That's one of the ways we're making them so much better than they used to be 25 years ago when it was this black metal, if you will. Sure. So the, the, the carbon you use, for example, at a bottom bracket is different than the carbon you use in a down tube. Not necessarily that, not, not that basic, because I mean, when you, when you build a layup, you typically start with a, a foundation that kind of builds the whole, the whole frame, if you will, and it gives it the structure and the strength of it. But then you can start to do areas that have different types of materials blended into it. So you would never say, let's say a bottom bracket needs to be stiff. So I'm just going to put high modulus material in the bottom bracket. No, it's always a mixture of finding the right level of intermediate modulus material using that fiber or only in the places that it does its job. Let's say on the side of the down tubes in a, in a zero direction. So again, you just don't put this material here and that it's all about blending and mixing. And a lot of it's experimenting and testing. So, you know, that's where we kind of, you know, I remember in the presentation, I think, you know, last year when we were talking about it, I like to use the analogy that the layup schedule is kind of like a, it's kind of like a recipe for uh, cooking in the kitchen, you know. Um, if you have a couple different people cooking all the same dish, you have the same ingredients, kind of like a, one of those cooking shows on TV my wife watches them sometimes. 
But um, what happens is you have all the same ingredients, but depending on how they're prepared, how they're oriented, how much of this and how much of that, each individual person can make something that's completely different. And that's kind of what's going on in the bicycle industry at this point right now. I think that most people have the ability to get whatever materials they pretty much want, at least the premium brands who have access to that. Most of the manufacturing process have evolved and stuff, but now it really comes down to how people are utilizing this material, how much effort, how much time they're spending on refining that layup. And that's what makes a, a good bike great. And that's where I think we've kind of taken the industry right now is that we have some people who are putting out the effort, using the proper materials and really, really focusing on what it takes to make a great carbon bike. And here we are. So, I, you know, we're, you mentioned a term. So, okay, I got to be honest with you. While you were talking, I, I was kind of, I was kind of staring longingly at my coffee that was just out of reach. Uh, um, so I, I'm boring you. No, no, no. I, I, my coffee is just calling my name, and I couldn't reach it. So, I, I missed something. Um, you, you use the word modulus a few times, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure if you defined that for our listeners. So, I wanted to just hit rewind for a second. So, let's talk about modulus. What does modulus mean? Sure, no problem. So modulus is this basically way of measuring. When we talk about it, for the most part, what people are interested in is the tensile modulus, which is how stiff that individual fiber is. So you can see like, um, for example, like a, a material we call like a 30-ton material. It has a, a GPA of about mm, like 28 or 30. What's a GPA? And that cut. Oh, that's just a measure of the stiffness. Basically, they're talking about like individual fibers themselves. Like if you were to pick an individual strand of that fiber, mm -hmm. that's how we're looking at it when we're calling it something like that. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be used properly either. So that individual fiber then is put into something called toe, which is like a piece of yarn. Then that, that toe is spread, which then turns it into a unidirectional sheet. And all that unidirectional material is cut and placed into the frame. So when we're talking about the modulus of it, we're kind of talking about the individual fiber and kind of like the root of it, what type of material we're using. Mm -hmm. So typically, as the material gets stiffer, it also gets more brittle and it loses its strength. So you always have this trade-off of, I want a stiffer material because it's going to give me a little bit more responsive ride. But if I use too much of it or I use it in the wrong way, it becomes fragile and it can lead to a bike that could lose stiffness over time if the layup's not balanced properly, or it can lead to a frame that can be very easy to damage. Mm -hmm. You know, as the frames get lighter and thinner, it's much more easier to damage a frame during an impact. Sure. So you have always these, you always have these trade-offs of using a, a more standard modulus material, which is kind of like the foundation material, versus the, um, the higher modulus and even the ultra-high modulus materials, which are the stiffer materials, but they also lose the strength. Does that make a little more sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it's pretty likely that when somebody buys a carbon frame today, they're going to get a mix. They're going to get a mix of different modulus uh, carbon within that frame, right? It's not going to all be one modulus of carbon. I think at a different price levels is where you're going to notice that. So I think when you're talking about, let's say, a lower price point frame, let's say somebody who's um, looking to get into the, the market of a carbon bike, it's their first carbon bike, they're not looking for something that's crazy lightweight. Um, a lot of times what we do is we can use a, a single material, only two different materials, because that foundation material um, offers all the strength you need. But then the way you can improve the stiffness is by using a little bit more of it. So typically a lower price point frame will be heavier, but it also will retain the same stiffness as a higher price point frame. The only difference is the higher price point frame is going to be lighter weight because you're using more of these high modulus or more of these expensive materials to get that stiffness and strength without just adding more material. 
So you can see again by having even the same molds, we can have different levels of frames depending on what types of material we use. So at a starting price point, you may have one or two materials in a frame because it makes it a little bit more simple of a layup, and you can add a little bit more of that material to get the stiffness and strength you need. But then as you start moving up in the price points, you'll start using and, and using maybe two materials, three materials, in some cases, six or seven different types of materials on the very, very lightweight frames where you're pushing the stiffness, the strength, and the durability. Okay. So now mm-hmm. taking a step back again, uh, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit about uh, the way the fibers can be wound into sheets. Now, let's let's talk let's talk about how a carbon frame is built then so you know we've we've seen kind of different uh methods there's definitely you know there's some brands out there that kind of make a big deal of uh filament winding you know their own carbon whereas whereas some companies will just do you know sheets um some people use molds some there's all sorts of different ways to use carbon what are the different ways uh bicycle frames are made from carbon and and what are the the challenges that go along with that Yeah, no problem. I mean, for the most part, I mean, you've kind of gotten, you have some companies that are still on the fringe of doing things certain way, you know, talking about filament winding tubes, um, bonding multiple tubes into frame sets together, like some of the hand bike, hand built frames and things like that. But for the most part, most bikes and what most people think of are like monocoque construction, where the frames are molded into a female mold, if you will. And that's pretty much kind of like the standard. So you want me to kind of start with that one? Yeah, and yeah. And go through that since that's what most people are dealing with? Yeah, let's hear a no little problem. bit about that, yeah. Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, basically what happens is is that, you know, the, the bike company, in, in our case, we design, do all the engineering of the frame in-house. When we're done, we have these 3D files that are exactly representation of the bike that we want to build. Those go over to the factory and they cut molds. So what they do is they basically take these giant plates of steel. You can imagine they're hundreds of pounds, and it's a clamshell. So you got a top and a bottom half of the mold. When you open it, there's a female cavity that is cut off your 3D files that you give to the factory, and that's an exact representation of the outside of the bicycle. So, and what happens is everyone kind of knows that's a mold. You put carbon fiber like in it, you said, and then you inflate it with some air pressure and you make a frame. It sounds easy, but there's a whole lot more to it. So one of the things you have to kind of start off with is how are you gonna actually get the carbon fiber into the mold in an accurate way? So a lot of that is what's evolved over the years. Um, Originally, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, that people kind of almost threw the material in the mold, and that's kind of what they did. They would actually take these clamshell molds and they would lay the material inside the halves of the frames One side of it would kind of hang out of the mold and overlap. They'd close the mold, put an air bladder in it, inflate it. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you kind of had these left and right halves that had an overlapping seam inside. And you had an air bladder inside the frame that just kind of went everywhere. So you got a lot of excess resin inside, a lot of wrinkles inside, a lot of just dead material. And that's how the original frames were made. So the process is still the same in the fact that you use an air bladder to inflate the carbon inside the mold, but really the important thing is kind of now how we get the carbon into it. It's made now more like in a a preform, if you will, is kind of what I always like to call it, in the fact that we make basically the frame around a mandrel by wrapping all the material, then this thing that looks almost like a finished frame but hasn't been cured yet goes into the mold and it's inflated. Hmm. So let let me wind back a little bit and explain a little bit more what that is. So you can imagine if you have a a frame, you have a frame for every single size bike that you're building. So you can imagine you have tooling for all that. But then this internal mandrel, basically it's a EPS styrofoam in a lot of cases. So 
you've seen your, your coffee cup that you're drinking right now is probably a styrofoam cup or the, the helmet on your head when you're riding your bicycle. That's EPS. Mm -hmm. So what we do now is we'll actually take those um, EPS shapes and we'll build them to be what the negative or let's see how to explain this easily. Inside the frame, you have your negative air volume. We'll make that out of the EPS, which kind of creates an armature, if you will, for the entire frame. Then the worker will follow the layup schedule, and piece by piece, they'll lay the carbon fiber over these EPS styrofoam tubes, if you will. The styrofoam actually also has an air bladder over it, so what you're kind of doing is building this sculpture by using these different materials, and when you're done, you have a frame that's basically laid up in a complete monocoque shape. And this would be like the front triangle, not the rear triangle. Mm -hmm. That entire piece then is put inside the mold halves and it's inflated and frame comes out after a period of time and heat. The biggest advantage to now versus the old days is that by using this internal mandrel, we're able to much more control the shape of the carbon of how it's going onto the frame. So for example, if I have a EPS core inside this frame, I can actually take the carbon and I can put it in a very specific location and it stays there when we start to mold it. You can also put the material down very flat, no air bubbles. You can actually debulk the material. So there's a lot more advantages to having these internal mandrels, but like everything else, it adds a lot more complication because now you have additional tooling. You have to make these EPS inserts or these cores for every single frame size for every single bike you're doing, which you know adds to the development costs and so on and so forth. But you end up with a frame that's got much more accurate layup. The inside is very clean and free from resin and voids, and you have a much more precise layup put down. So you can see how over the years, the process has kind of stayed the same, but we refined it to make it much more accurate, much more precise, and much less junk metal or sure. junk material inside the frame, if you will. Mm -hmm. now, that kind of making sense so far? Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to back up for those of you who don't speak nerd. Uh, I don't speak nerd. Sorry. Sorry, Sorry Jeff. I, <laughs> um, I, it's hard. I wish I had like I wish I had like visual things. So I could like yeah. show you these different parts. It would make it a lot easier to understand. Well, we don't want to make it. We parts. don't want to make it too easy on you. That's why we do podcasts and, and really make it a challenge. <laughs> for you. Um, so really, what we're talking about here is, uh, if I can simplify things, is you make us basically what's what's an EPS skeleton, and you wrap the carbon wrap the carbon around that EPS skeleton, and then that goes into the mold as one piece, rather than before where you would wrap you you lay carbon in half of a mold, and then you could yeah that would be one option right. And so mm -hmm. another, another, yeah, go on. Sorry. sorry. I just want to, I want to make sure our audience is clear on this because it's pretty complicated. So you get that EPS, uh, skeleton, you wrap your carbon around it, put it in the mold and you basically, you heat it up your, you, and then you inflate it, uh, with, with, uh, this, with this air bladder. Now here's a question. Uh, what do you do with that EPS now that the frame is, is ready, is cured? What happens to that EPS? Does it just stay inside the frame? What do you do with it? No, no problem. Good. And thanks for clarifying and making it a little bit simpler too. I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. But basically what happened, yeah, no, basically what happens to the EPS, um, again, if I wind back a little bit, the EPS itself is that skeleton, but before the carbon fiber is precisely wrapped in the proper forward fiber orientation around that EPS skeleton, an air bladder, a nylon bladder is placed over that EPS core, or you, you stick the EPS tubes inside that bladder. So what's nice about that is that the bladder is only used for laying up the carbon around it. Once you inflate the air bladder itself, the EPS is doing nothing because it's pushing the carbon away from the EPS and into the cavity of the mold. 
So because the frame's cured at a high temperature, basically that EPS styrofoam melts down. It doesn't really melt. It kind of just disintegrates into like sand-like particles. It kind of turns back into what it started off was, which is a small grain of sand plastic before it's puffed into that like foam shape. Mm -hmm. So what you do is when the frame's all done in curing, you grab the nylon bladder that's sticking out of the air fittings and you twist it, twist it, twist it like a braid, and it pulls right out of the frame along with all these little pieces of what's left of the EPS core. Cool. So you can imagine, take take a coffee cup, put it in the oven, and watch what happens to it. And that's basically what's left over inside the air bladder. Yeah. Comes out easy, and you have a beautiful finish inside the frame. If any of you guys try that at home, definitely send me a video of you sticking your uh, your coffee cup in an oven. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to be the guy to try that one. My wife would kill me. Uh <laughs> I've already broken enough appliances in this house. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. Now, just to be clear, uh, that is, that is like you said, one method of creating a carbon frame. And there, there are many others. We're not going to get into all of them. But really what this, this indicates is that carbon, aside from being, uh, you know, a great material for tailoring ride quality, is also really a, a, a neat material to work with during construction. It's, a, it's an interesting and unique way to create a bike frame rather than just straight tubes that you get, you know, you cut from metal or you extrude or things like that. So it is, it is a pretty neat uh, concept that, you know, this, this is where we landed in bicycle technology, not just having, you know, we started with just, you know, weld this tube to this tube, and then you've got a bike frame. Now we're actually piecing them together with tiny filaments made into sheets, which are then put in a mold, which are, I mean, it's just a really incredible process. Um, now all of that, all that carbon is, is not the only thing in your frame. Uh, there are, we're going to talk about additives in a moment, but first I want to talk about the other key component of, of carbon, uh, frame construction, and that's resin. Can you tell me what resin is and, and how it works in conjunction with carbon? No problem. Resin is really the binder that holds the carbon fiber in position relative to itself and lets it do its job. You can imagine, um, take a bundle of sticks in your hand, and then you can kind of twist them and move them all around. But if I were to wrap some string around that bundle of sticks and pull them really tightly, it kind of holds them in position, and it would gain a lot of stiffness and a lot of structure. Well, resin, in a way, is that same kind of thing. It binds all these individual fibers together and lets them do their job. And that's really what it comes down, with, down to. So, But how you apply that resin... Um, the process for it, what type of resin, all those things can also really change the way the bike is manufactured, can change the way the bike rides, and also can change dramatically the, the strength and stiffness of the frame too, in a way. Is there only one resin that's used with carbon or are there many different kinds of resins? Oh, there, there's, there's many different types of resins that are used. Um, for an example, like on a, a rim that was using a rim brake, there's high, high TG resin, which is a high temperature resin. Um, but more specifically for bicycle frames, we have different types of resins that are used depending on the process. If it's a drum wound um, material or if it's a hot melt machine or if it's a, um, a bicycle frame that uses a toughened epoxy. And I think that's kind of where you're getting to. Um, the industry has a lot of good marketing terms and things for talking about these different resins that are toughened. And that's the ability of the, the, the resin to take an impact, if you will, and help keep the fibers held together better. So a lot of people are interested in these different types of resins called toughened resins because it makes the frame more durable for impact, which is one of the, you know, one of the, there was a weakness of carbon. Uh, um, I would say it's the, uh, the ability of a frame to take an impact. Mm -hmm. And this is where these different types of resins can help out. Gotcha. Now, we already talked a little bit about this, but let's talk a little bit about how carbon layups have changed since the early days of carbon frames. 
most specifically, you know, we, we talked sort of briefly about how, you know, it used to be that you just, you put a hunk of carbon in a, a mold and you blasted it and there, there was your frame. How's, how's that changed over the years? I mean, do you really, do you tailor each part of the bike? Do you use different kinds of, like, what's the process now? How has it changed to make the ride quality of the bikes better? Well, a lot of it's come down to just, uh, you know, testing and using professional athletes and stuff to help refine the layups in a lot of ways too. You know, you almost always are going to start off with like a base foundation. Let's say I'm working on a new frame and for the first time we're taking the first sample out of the mold. But we, have, we already have a real good idea of how we want that fiber orientation because we can do analysis on the computer of the shapes and things like that before we even cut the tools. So we have a good idea of what this kind of this base or this foundation of the layup is. You know, and you have some things that are basically the same for all bicycles, some of the forces and stresses they have to take. But then what we do is we get ride samples. And not only do we test these frames on um, riding them on the street, but then we'll also put them in the laboratory and check them for stiffness, check them for different um, testing, like impact testing and things for strength like that. And we go back and forth over and over between testing for stiffness, strength, ride quality, back and forth. So a lot of times it can take well over a year just to develop a, a layup for one of the frame sizes mm -hmm. you know, kind of getting that base foundation and kind of figuring out what that frame likes to make it ride like the athletes want or ride like how we want it to ride like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot, a lot more refinement I think today than there was back in the day. There was, you know, there was such a huge change going from a carbon frame to an aluminum frame that people felt an immediate difference. Mm -hmm. But now as the frames are evolved and getting better and better, it's um, it's harder and harder to make these frames that much lighter and that much better over the last few years. But compared to a frame from 20 years ago, it's a huge improvement of what we've done as far as uh, the refinements. Sure. I want to talk in a minute about uh, where, where carbon comes from. Uh, but before we get to that, I actually want to skip forward a little bit. We talked briefly about other additives. Now, we talked about resin, which is, you know, uh, clearly clearly an additive that goes into making a carbon frame. But what, we're also seeing other additives go into carbon frames now. Like, I know Look has their flax that they put in there, uh, flax fibers. And Bianchi has their very, you know, top secret countervail. Uh, what, are these, what are these additives and what do they do? I mean, I, I can't speak specifically for what they're proprietary or if they have any proprietary technology, but I don't know if you call it an additive or it's just really a different type of fiber again. I mean, if you think about flax fiber, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're taking and replacing the carbon fiber filaments with fl uh, flax filaments, but they're still using a resin system and they're still laying it into the structure as if it were just another piece of carbon fiber. So... What we've done is we've used different materials and we've mixed different types of materials. If it's like in a negra fiber or if it's a flax fiber or if it's just different types of materials other than carbon fiber, you can almost put these in layers in the frame. And I, I believe what most people are using them for is vibration damping. Um, in a way, you have the vibrations that transferred for the tubes. But if you can put a material that is a little bit different in its vibration damping, you can help kind of eliminate some of that vibration from transferring all the way up to the rider. Mm -hmm. So by using a flax fiber or using a countervail, I'm not sure what their proprietary technology is. But really what I think they're trying to do is use these different materials other than carbon to change the ride quality. Mm -hmm. And if that's add comfort or reduce vibration or give it a different feeling – I think that's kind of the goal with that. I see. I see. But so, I, 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 I really see it as being a future, though, for the bikes because you, we've taken carbon pretty far. But I think the next level is kind of making these these compounded materials of mixing different types of 
layers with different types of carbon to really control and take it to the next level. I, I kind of see that's where things are going. That's sort of what's happening in tires, right? With rubbers. I mean, they're, they're starting to add things to rubber uh, compounds. They're making rubber compounds now to, to tailor the way your, your tires ride. So it's sort of that in, same concept. You know, you're, you're taking that base material and you're sort of changing it and adding things to, to get the characteristics that you need uh, to, to essentially have your frame, uh, the sum of the, the sum of all these parts ends up, you know, dictating the ride quality of your frame. Exactly. Exactly. And again, like we talked about earlier, it's, you know, everyone has access to all these same materials. It's if they choose to use them or how they choose to use them. So you can have two frames that come out of the same mold that'll have a completely different riding characteristics not only depending on how you orient the fiber, what carbon fiber you use, but now think about adding in another type of material, um, you know, polypropylene material or something that can vibration dampen. And you mix these with the different layers of fibers. And now just think of how many different dimensions there are to adjusting this frame, making it more vertically compliant, making it more laterally stiff, make it reduce vibrations. There's all these things we can do, but a lot of it's just taking experimenting. And that's kind of, I think, where things are going right now. Okay. So let's let's go back to my other question that I had mentioned earlier. Where does where does carbon come from? Sure, carbon. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a material engineer. And far as saying I'm going to say how carbon is made, but for the most part, what they're doing is they're taking um, like different types of plastics, rayons, and different materials, and they're carbonizing it. They're basically burning it until there's nothing left but carbon. And by taking this material and burning it and oxidizing it. They're making carbon fiber out of it. I'm not going to get into the details of it because it's not my thing. But um, basically, most of the carbons are coming from different countries. Japan's a, a big producer of carbon fiber that we use. But more and more, you're starting to see it pop up in some of the other countries as well, too. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was just going to ask, because I know you guys are based in Irvine, and I know you're not just going outside and picking, picking carbon off the carbon tree. So it sounds like you guys do Im import your carbon. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, most of the premium brands are going to use material that come from, you know, reputable manufacturer, Tureka, Mitsubishi, uh, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different companies, but most of those materials are used throughout the world in different industries, aerospace, sporting goods, and things like that. Gotcha. So, so when we source material, um, you know, like anything else, we can specify what manufacturers we use, but mostly we specify which material we want to use, and those come from the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. But know that when they come from the manufacturer, they're typically coming from the manufacturer in just a toe or that actual piece of yarn. That material then is imported into the country. For example, most of the frames, a lot of the frames are made in, in China or in, in Asia. And so that material is imported from Japan into those countries, at which point it's pre-pregged and mixed with the resin that's used to actually make the frames. Mm -hmm. So there's still processing that has to be done to that material, even though it comes from this country or that country. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to buy material that's the carbon fiber itself is produced in Japan, but then the epoxy is put into the material to make the prepreg in either China or Korea or different countries like that. So there's, there's again, like everything else, there's many different aspects of it. Sure. And again, just, just to clarify also the, so the, the resin also uh, is, is outsourced. So you guys aren't sitting there like mad scientists with white lab coats developing your own resins in California there, are you? No, not us. We're us particularly are not doing that. I'm not sure if there's anyone doing that, but different factories will have their own um, ideas for resins, and different companies produce different resins. So again, 
if you have a certain cure cycle you want to use, if you have a certain property that you're looking for, there's all different resins where you can use to tune the manufacturing processes as well as the end results of the product too for either toughness or, or what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so now we know where carbon comes from. We have a general understanding of uh, how a carbon frame is made. Uh, it, the end product uh, historically has been sort of known for being, you know, you have to be kind of delicate with it and it's prone to damage. Um, is that still the case? And if, if it isn't the case, what, what changed? Well, I think it's always still the case, especially when we're pushing the limits of some of these super light frames. You start talking sub 700 gram frames. There's only so much wall thickness you can have in a frame that's that light. But you do things to, you know, make that better. So when you're doing different frames, there's obviously different ways of using the material for different purposes. So if we're building a mountain bike frame, it's going to have a completely different type of layup and material selection. Let's say like you know, a sub 700 gram road frame and the durability and all that's kind of considered along with it. So in the older days, I think what happened is you just had a lot more of this random placement of fibers and things like that. So you had heavy frames, but then you had areas of the frames that were susceptible to damage that you necessarily weren't reinforcing with special materials. So an example is a a texturing material is something that we use here at Felt. And what we do is we're using this texturing material throughout the frame in various locations, let's say on the top tube or different areas of the down tube, to help kind of minimize the amount that an impact can take on a frame. Uh, A toughened epoxy can also do the same thing as far as helping hold the fiber together internally. But you can imagine that if you take your bike and you drop it against the corner of a, a wall or something, you have it park somewhere and the wind blows and it falls down that little corner of the wall can hit your frame damage the top tube and actually break your carbon fiber because it has a a very sharp point load Mm -hmm. but i think what we've done now is by using some of these toughened epoxies and then by using these different fabrics that we can use on the frame in some locations it almost acts like a little bit of a bulletproof vest in the fact that it takes that sharp impact and disperses it over a larger area and helps minimize some of the damage and things that can come from a small impact interesting so uh... I got a question for you. I'm going to interrupt. Just uh, so you know, the blunt uh, force of that corner can certainly damage a carbon without your your texture uh, reinforcement. Of course. But what other well, even with what other kinds of uh, impacts will will really make what what, are, what is carbon really susceptible to damage in that sense? Like we we've, we've always heard like yeah, you know, you've even seen videos online of people taking a hammer and hitting a, a carbon frame with a direct blow and it doesn't do anything but mm-hmm. then you you know you leave your your bike leaning against that wall and it gets a tiny scrape and your frame is is shot um are there different are there different types of forces that carbon is better at resisting well i think that you know carbon's great for fatigue it's not like an aluminum frame that we're over a period of time it fatigues Um, carbon's great for that. So the cycle time and the the longevity of the frame is great. Where carbon doesn't like is is those impacts we were talking about, like you said, like hitting it with a hammer. Well, it depends on what part of the frame you're hitting, what material, how you're building it. So again, you know, but usually those sharp kind of impacts are what's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It falls against the corner of your of a wall. It's on your bike rack and it's banging into something else and the pedal from your other bike is slamming into the down tube. You know, as these frames get lighter and lighter, they have to have that stiffer material we were talking about, but it becomes more brittle. So you can imagine as the frame gets lighter and stiffer, an impact hitting it being more brittle can damage your frame. 
And a lot of times, too, what you'll see is it's that compression load that where it hits it, and it actually damages the fibers internally. It'll blow the fibers out the back where you don't even see it. Mm -hmm. The outside will look great. You'll be like, oh, man, my frame's good. Thank God I didn't hurt it. But you can actually damage some of those internal fibers. You're riding your bike a week or two later, and all of a sudden you start to see a crack forming on your top tube, right where your handlebar swung around and hit it two weeks earlier. Well, what most likely happened is, is that impact blew some of those fibers out on the inside. You're riding the bike now, that top tube's seeing torsion, and it's going to start to propagate that crack out. So that's when you get those JRA calls where it's like, I was just riding along and I noticed a crack forming in my top tube. Hmm. It's like, well, what'd you do a week ago? Well, they're not going to tell you that they slammed their trunk door on the back of the bicycle or they crashed in a crit or something like that. But that's usually the thing that we always tell people to worry about is that anytime you damage a frame, you hit it or impact it, even though it looks fine, you want to have that looked at and oh, make sure that you didn't do any internal damage. I'm, I'm now convinced that every single bike in my garage is damaged and I'm in immediate danger <laughs> of falling off my bike and cracking it. Uh, no, 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 it's, no, it's probably true. <laughs> um, I'm not real gentle with my bikes. <laughs> um, what do we, what are we forgetting about carbon frames? That's really important for people to know. Uh, what, what do we know about the construction specifically? And, you know, for a general consumer who's looking at all of these different frames with all these different additives and marketing terms that just don't really mean anything to them. Uh, what, what do they need to know when they're choosing a, a carbon frame to, to invest quite a bit of money in? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, for me, I always like to tell people is first, you know, decide what you want to do with this frame. Are you going to be an aggressive rider where you just throw your stuff around? You don't take care of it. Well, if that's the case, you're better off getting more of like an endurance type bike that has a layup. It's a little bit heavier layup, a little bit sturdier. It's maybe not the lightest thing around, but it's going to give you good stiffness and good performance when you do drop your frame or you crash it in a cycle cross race or something like that. Don't go buy a, a sub 700 gram frames if you're going to abuse it because it's not going to handle that type of you know abuse and things like that. But again, you know, a lot of it is what you you, you get for what you're getting what you pay for a lot of ways, you know. Um, the material cost is one thing, but you have to look at all the R&D and research that goes into these frames from different manufacturers. What makes a premium frame ride that much better? What makes a frame have that much more responsive feeling? A lot of this just comes down to the time and the investment that the, uh, the company decides to put into the frame. So I, that actually that actually leads nicely into a pretty important question that I think we'll probably wrap up the pod with. Uh, a lot of times, you know, even when I'm talking to friends of mine who are not you know, uh, they don't work in the industry, so they don't get that sweet deal, you know, on the bike. Uh, so they're paying full price. And one of the things I often hear is, oh, you know, all the carbon frames are made in the same place anyway. I'm just going to order mine from China off of Alibaba. And it's the same thing. Is it the same thing? What do you what do you say to those people who are looking to spend less money? And, and they're the cynical take is that, you know, all these companies are just charging too much for their carbon frames when I can get it cheaper from China. What do you tell those folks? Well, basically, again, I go back to telling them you get what you're paying for. You know what I'm saying is you can build a carbon frame in many different construction methods. And even on the outside, even though it looks like carbon, it has a certain weight to it, you don't know what material they're using inside. You don't know the skill set of the labors. You don't know the consistency of their manufacturing. You don't know what experience they had even to put the fibers down in the correct location to give you a bike that rides properly. There's just so many unknowns that you would get on a frame like that that it's just not simply worth the risk. I mean, it's not worth it. So you go to a reputable manufacturer, you know that the frame's been tested, you know the frame's brought to standards that are acceptable and even a lot of times surpassed 
for industry standards. You know the development is there because they're using their pro athletes or the development's there because they have an engineering staff that's making sure the stiffness, the weight, the strength, they're testing samples, they're writing samples. Do you think these these companies where you're buying a frame from Alibaba is going out and really looking at the layup and making sure it's optimized to give you good ride quality and stiffness and strength? They're just throwing whatever they can almost find into the mold basically and trying to sell a counterfeit. They're making it look like something else. Mm -hmm. So you get what you pay for, and I don't know, I think most people – if they really kind of knew how much development, how much work, how much testing goes into a premium frame that costs more, you'll see that it's worth it. So in a sense, you're really, you're paying a lot of money for a carbon frame, but in, in a lot of ways you're paying for the research that went into making sure it's A, safe, uh, B, you know, comfortable, and C, is, is, has, has a tailored ride quality. Uh, so you really, a lot of what you're paying for with those expensive frames is accountability. Uh, you know, these, you know, 100%. yes, because you, you know, the, nobody wants a lawsuit, you know? And so I think, uh, a lot of manufacturers primary goal is to make sure the frame is safe before anything else. And that's one of the things that right. really worries me about people buying these counterfeits is that yes. you don't know where that carbon's coming from. You don't know what's in it. You don't know who built it. Uh, and exactly. And, and let's, let's remember guys, we zip down hills at 50 miles an hour, you know, like mm -hmm. that's not something you want to do on something you don't know who your face you know. is worth. Yeah. I would, you, know, you could be buying, you could be buying this frame from a, a trading company who sources it from three different factories and maybe the mold looks the same, but maybe the frame your buddy says is great because he got it from factory A is different than the one who came from factory B. You just, you don't know what you're getting. There's no accountability. Right, so right. again, my, my personal well-being is a little bit more worth it than that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you go, you go with a reputable manufacturer because you know that it's safe and you know that the, the confidence is in the product. I'm already really good at hurting myself. I don't need anybody's help. So yeah, no, we don't want that. Yeah. Jeff, thanks for joining me today uh, and, uh, and, and kind of wading through the sea of, of the very complex topics. And we really just kind of scratched the surface of it. But thanks for, thanks for giving us a general understanding of what's, what's uh, carbon layups are all about. Yeah, I mean, we could go into it for weeks. It gets, it gets so detailed in the amount of refinement that we can do with the frames. It's, it's kind of hard just to touch on it. And I hope I didn't get a little too crazy with it. But, you know, thanks for having me on and giving me a chance to kind of explain a little bit what we do. Of course. Uh, and for all of you listening... Uh, as always, if you have any questions about this podcast or any other of my tech podcasts, you are welcome to tweet at me at Brown Tie Dan. And please do subscribe to this podcast and leave a comment if at all possible. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, thank you again for listening to the Vel News Tech Podcast. And we'll be coming at you again soon with another very complex topic.